Rolasso in this last session for the four measurables. Let's also do something that is synthetic and let's come back to the beginning and to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, see if we can come back to the beginning for the first time. And that is envisioning our own flourishing and then the different phases, and I, I, I'll mention in the retreat, but very briefly, because I think you're all familiar with it, and then we'll see how we can develop it from there. So let's go back to loving-kindness for ourselves, the type of vision quest we've done a few times. Um, let's just jump in and see how it goes. Begin as always by settling the body, the speech and mind in the natural states. And now as we move into the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, let's first of all envision 
our own flourishing. What would make each of us here, make you truly happy? Realize your highest ideals. If you envision this within the Mahayana framework, there's no reason to envision anything less than perfect enlightenment. And the benefits you will derive from that for yourself, let alone for others. Envision your own flourishing. With each outbreath, arouse the yearning that you may indeed realize your heart's desire. And if you wish, you may add to this the visualization of the symbol of your own Buddha nature as an orb of light at your heart, filling your whole being with every outbreath, with this light of loving kindness and joy. Imagine realizing your ideal.
in order to realize this ideal? What would you love to receive from the world around you? Envision it. Yearn for it. And imagine yourself receiving it with each in-breath.
then envision what type of a person would you love to become, free of what qualities, endowed with what qualities, and arouse the yearning to evolve and transform into such a person. And with each out-breath, breathe out this light of loving-kindness, that it may be so.
And then in order to imbue your own life with the greatest possible meaning, envision what would you most love to offer to the world around you. In the near term, the long term, to those who are near and to those who are far. And with every outbreath, arouse the yearning that it may be so as you breathe out this light of loving kindness. And raise the question, if you will, how can you bring the greatest possible meaning to this and any future lives? How can you bring the greatest benefit, be most effective in alleviating the sufferings of others and helping them realize their own deepest yearnings? 
And with this thought, you may arouse the yearning once again to achieve perfect enlightenment, such that all the afflictions and obscurations that veil your mind, your own Buddha nature, have been dispelled. Your full potential of wisdom, compassion, creative power are fully unveiled. So if you will, arouse the yearning to achieve perfect awakening, the awakening of a Buddha, in order to be of greatest possible benefit to all sentient beings without exception. And with each outbreath, arouse this yearning. May it be so. And then allowing your imagination to play, imagine that this aspiration is realized here and now. Imagine being fully awake. each in-breath, arouse the compassionate yearning to relieve all sentient beings of suffering and the causes of suffering. And with each out-breath, arouse the loving aspiration to bring each one to their own fulfillment, to genuine happiness.
and release all appearances and objects of the mind and let your awareness rest in its own place. Let's bring the session to a close. Oh, not so. So, the final question from Stacy. Uh, with regards to the quality of our meditation, subject and object, can you explain the differences between the terms vividness? Ah, oh, there it is. Vividness, clarity, and luminous. Oh, no. I can't. Because they're all translations of the same term. Selwa. Sawarade. Just one term. Yeah, so um, I use the words pretty much interchangeably. Each one, I think, captures a different aspect of this one Tibetan term, salwa. So is your mind clear? Well, we know what that means. Uh, when I spoke with one friend of mine who's a cognitive scientist, and he, he really understood what was meant by, by this term in the practice of shamatha, he told me, he's a psychologist, he said, I think within our terminology, that is professional terminology within psychology, he said, I think vividness probably is the closest. So then I switched to, uh, to vividness. But then when it comes to settling, having achieved shamatha and settling your mind, dissolving your mind, into the substrate consciousness, then it has these three qualities, bliss, and this quality, and non-conceptuality, and clarity just wasn't enough. And vividness is way not enough. Uh, and so I sensed that in that context, then sheer luminosity is better. And also bearing in mind that the two defining characteristics of consciousness altogether are selshing, there's selwa again, selshing rikpa, so there's selwa. So shall we say that a defining characteristic of awareness or consciousness is vividness? It, it doesn't sit right. Or clarity? Not right. Luminosity? Oh yeah. 
Why? Because it's awareness and awareness alone that, that illuminates. When I look over in, uh, to, your, to your direction and I see the appearance, the visual appearances you've performed, why is it that I don't just see a void or just molecules? Or, but even if I saw molecules, that would be an appearance. And it's because as I attend to you, where there's a body of molecules and photons being sprayed in all directions, the reason that I'm getting any appearances is because my awareness is illuminating those appearances. And so I thought, since that's the very defining characteristic of consciousness, and you're getting it, as the Buddha said, or he referred to this, and Pinchon Pinchon Lhasa Chukyansen said, when you achieve shamatha, then then you recognize the essential nature of the mind, right? Central nature of awareness, and that is, of course, luminous and cognizant. So I felt in that context, the defining characteristics of consciousness and the quality that remains when your mind has dissolved, that was luminosity. So Tibetans have done this quite a few times. They'll take one term from the Sanskrit and divide it, like the word jnana, they'll translate some, sometimes as shepa, other times as yeshe, other times they'll take three terms, vata, vayu, and prana, and translate it all with one term, lung, lumatoyamate. So I'm in that tradition. Okay? So the answer is no, I can't, I can't explain the differences. So let's go, let's find the one by, uh, from... Nathan, here it is. So, just I've not read it before, so I'll just read it. Do you think Do you think the West, particularly the United States, needs to develop the kinds of monasteries that were prevalent in Asia, such as India and Tibet? I would love to see it. That I can say. Um, I would love to see monasteries and, and nunneries all over the place, uh, because I think they're really just like like lighthouses of virtue. The very word sangha. Um, in Tibetan is gendun, those who are aspiring for virtue. So to have institutions that are all about people just wanting to focus their whole lives on the cultivation of virtue and are willing to make a lot of sacrifices to have no complications, just keep their lives really simple and just focus on the cultivation of virtue and then being of service. I'd love to see as many as possible. Um, but do I think it needs to? Well, I think the real practical issue there, yeah, do I think it, it, there's a need for it? I think it would be very, very beneficial. But for that to happen, um, I mean, the, the medieval Christian monks found a way to supplement, or even, I think, in some cases, they must have probably been quite self-sufficient during the medieval period. I mean, so many wars and droughts and famines, I don't know about fat and droughts, but famines and pestilence and so forth, the economy was very topsy-turvy through the medieval period, the Dark Ages and all of that. And so, of course, they would, on the one hand, rely upon donations from the outside, but they also got in, uh, ingenious and said, well, what do we do? Well, let's make jam. Let's, let's have a little hostel here and we'll provide a little hotel. Uh, let's do this. Let's, and so they, let's do gardening. Let's make, you know, let's make wine. Let's make oil. Whatever they did to support them in their very simple lifestyle. To, so when, things, when the donations got really meager, they wouldn't simply starve to death. And so throughout much of the history of Christianity and really all of the history of Buddhism, where Buddhism has really flourished, I think the general lay public uh, has been sufficiently aware that there really is a great benefit to them and their children and the next generation to have monasteries that they would quite gladly, you know, this has been going on for centuries, quite gladly make sufficient donations to build the monasteries and make sure they're well provided. Now, and then sometimes, and this happened a lot in Tibet, it must have happened in Mongolia, then a person would, would die, maybe have no children, and some people, rather it's, Fairly, fairly wealthy, some people very wealthy, and they would just offer all of their, their land 
to the monasteries. Then the monasteries started having estates, and some, some of the mon monks then would be running the estates, and then the barley or whatever coming, coming from the farms would go to the monastery, and so they were able to support themselves in that way. But the short answer is that when the, the Buddhist lay public, you don't expect non-Buddhists to pitch in, why would they? But when the Buddhist lay public sees that it's in their own interest for the preservation of Dharma, for their own benefit, that of their children, and society at large, to have monasteries, then they quite naturally want to support them, and they do, right? Thus far, that's virtually not happened at all. I mean, hardly at all. So minuscule. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that I won't go into. Uh, but until that happens, we won't have the, we, there aren't many monks, uh, monasteries that I know of that are really self-sufficient. So maybe they need to be, but it's tough. I was a monk in the West, that is, in America, for six years, and never had a benefactor that could, supported me, you know, fully. Um, so it was difficult. It was difficult. And I tried to start a monastery and couldn't, couldn't start a monastery either. There was just was no support at all. And so with, then with sadness, then I decided, I think I really should stay here in the West and try to be of service here, but I don't see how I can do it as a monk when I have no support of any kind. Not lay people, not, not abbot, not fellow monks, nothing at all. Uh, it's, that's tough. It's really tough. So, that's the short answer, but let's see. Monasteries such as Ganden and Sarah, where monks would spend 15 years or more, yeah, 25 sometimes, sometimes they spend their whole lives there. They'd first be students and then teachers. They'd be first students and cooks, administrators. There were a lot, there's a lot of work to do in a monastery that has maybe 8,000 monks in it. And these were large monasteries. So, uh, where monks would spend 15 years or more in formal monastic training and then go into retreat. Uh, I wish that were the case for the 8,000 monks the ones who would receive 15, 20, 25 years of training and then go into retreat, small percentage, small percentage. But most of them would live wholesome lives and they might remain in the monastery as teachers. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of mundane tasks that needed to be, do, that be done uh, and, and moreover they would perform uh, ritual services, various type of religious services for the surrounding community. So they'd go out and be of service in that way. Um, but it was always a small percentage, I think all, for a long, long time, a really small percentage. Uh, people like Geshe Rapten, Gyanlam Rimba, Gyanchambawondu. I mean, I've known them. Those are the teachers I've gone to. I've gone to. But I've gone to the really tiny minority, right? So there we are. Uh, if not, do you think we should at least develop more thorough foundations for Buddhist philosophy so that hopefully, after one achieves shamatha and moves on to advanced practices, one can navigate the terrain effectively? Certainly, yes. I mean, philosophy is, Buddhist philosophy is taught in um, monasteries around the world. Um, but it's taught quite rigorously, but um, often not so systematically in university programs. I mean, I was in the university for four years as a professor. I spent six years getting a PhD. And if you're getting a graduate degree in Buddhism, in Buddhist studies, from my experience, and I'm sure this differs from one university to another, but it's not a systematic, methodical Buddhism from A to Z. That's not how it works. Uh, it depends on the interests of the professor, so one professor is really interested in the body. So he'll give seminars on the body and gender and sexuality and maybe the commodification of Buddhism in the West and also teach philosophy. And another one's not interested in any of that stuff. This person's in, really interested in ritual and um, you know things related to ritual. Another one not interested in that at all, much more interested in anthropology of Buddhism. And so depending on the professor who's running the program, you'll get what that professor is really interested in but I frankly don't know of a graduate program where you get a very systematic, as if you were in a Buddhist monastery, a systematic, regular, sequential training all the way through. 
Jeffrey Hopkins, when he was active in Virginia, he would give probably as close to that as anybody I know. He's been retired for some years. And so they do it, but um, I think you really, for that overall, you'd want to have a Buddhist institution. Because also in most universities, they are secular, and so when they're teaching philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, Madhyamaka, Chittamatra, and so forth, they're not teaching that to, okay, here's the text, and now go home and put in, you know, 20 hours of meditation of the week and get back to me and tell me how it turned out. You'd probably get fired if you tried that, right? Because it's just not the way it's done. Uh, in the university that I, uh, that, where I taught for four years, the Dean of Humanities, who is the boss of our whole department, said um, just about the time that I didn't get a long-term post there, our approach to religion is, is, is non-religious. Our approach to religion is non-religious. And fair enough. I mean, you know, it's their, it's their call. It's a state university, a public university. Therefore, it can't be religious. You know, you, you can't be helping people explicitly to achieve enlightenment. At least you, you don't make that public. Uh, but that means that you're going to teach theory without practice. And uh, His Holiness had a good analogy for that. Shall I go on? Maybe, maybe one analogy. I think it's worthwhile. Um, a word to the wise is sufficient. His Holiness was talking about what happens if you just focus on theory. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing any institution. There's a lot of very good scholarship done in major universities, smaller universities. So I'm not criticizing any institution and not any, any person. I'm simply quoting His Holiness on a point I think is very importantly true. And he's talking about those, and this happens in monasteries as well, who never really get interested in the practice that much. They don't spend any time shamatha, they don't really spend any time in any meditation at all, but they really like, they really like the studies. They're good at it, they're very smart, they memorize, they debate, they, learn, they get very clever in Buddhism. And the Dalai Lama gave an analogy for those who devote themselves to study and learning and acquisition of you know, more and more knowledge, but never apply it to practice. And he said, compared to a person who studies some and then puts it into practice, studies some and puts it into practice. If we take the, the happy scenario of a person who learns something, received teachings on the a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life or Shantideva or the four applications of mindfulness, whatever, learns about it and then eagerly accepts it, receives it and says, okay, good, I'm going to put this into practice, see what it tastes like. So like it's, you're just, you've just been given a cookbook or a, a number of menus, say, boy, that looks good, let's try it, let's go to the kitchen, let's see if we can cook something up, you know? So when you do that way, you learn something, you put it into practice, and then you come back to the text, and now, as a number of you have mentioned, when you read a text and then really practice it, and then go back to the text, the text reads differently. Because now when you see those words, you say, oh yeah, I had that experience a week ago, oh, oh yeah, I remember that, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So now you're in dialogue with the text. It's not the text monologuing to you, but you are coming back from your own experience, and now it takes on a much richer texture, depth, and a real communication it takes place, almost like a dialogue. And so His Holiness gave this analogy for such a person who studies and then practices and then comes back to studying and practice and integrating these through all the way. He said it's like taking a, um, a piece of un... What's the term? Un, un, uh, leather, un, untanned untanned leather, just a piece of leather, a piece of cowhide, you know, just straight, and it's, it's, hard, it's, it's not very malleable. So you take your piece of untanned leather, and this being in Tibet, then he told how you tan leather in Tibet. You take butter, of course, you use butter for everything, <laughs> you know, so you take butter, yak butter, and you put on a big glom of yak butter, and then you start working with this untanned leather to, to knead it, 
So you're kneading it just, and working that butter into the leather. And it gets, and then it kind of absorbs the, the, but, the, the butter and you throw some more butter on it. And knead it in, knead it in until after you've really thoroughly kneaded that butter into the leather, then it's malleable, it's supple. And you can use it for all kinds of things, for clothing, for a sack, all kinds of things, right? It's malleable leather. It's very workable. And that's the way to go. He said, in contrast to that, a person who studies but doesn't practice, just studies and, and studies more and studies more, but never comes into it, never integrates it with experience. He said, this person is like a person where you take, once again, a piece of untanned leather, same piece of leather, and you slap a little butter on it, and you smear it on the surface, a bit casually, just like that. And then you just say, ah, okay, job done, finished, and you set it aside. What happens to that piece of leather is that the butter sinks in a little bit, and then it hardens. When you come back to the leather, and you think, oh, maybe I, should have, maybe I should be actually doing some practice here. Maybe I should work with that leather. And you take another piece of butter, and you slap it onto it, and you try to work it in, it breaks. It just, it, it just crumbles. And now you got nothing. It's too late. You can really habituate yourself to treating dharma simply as a field of knowledge. And then it can actually make the mind quite resistant uh, to getting actual benefit from it. So that's just straight from his holiness. And again, I emphasize not criticizing anyone. I'm prone to this myself. Prone to this. It's not just for other people. So, yep, so that's that. So theory and practice, uh, they, these are the great words of the Buddha and Tsongkhapa and Padmasambhava and all of the other great beings. So here is a question. It's an anonymous question. Uh, could you please clarify what the word mind is in the innate mind of clear light? What does that refer to? Nyukmesem. Nyukmesem. Nyukmesem rusewa sigirbe. Nyukmesem rusewa. Ruseki nyukmesem karisigare. Kingyube. So it's in English. I actually know the English oddly enough. The, the innate mind, that's nyukmesem. That I remember. And I think it must be something like nyukmesem usel or useki nyukmesem. It's often translated, and well, very well translated, as innate mind of clear light, right? And that's the terminology that comes up in the, in the context of stage of generation and completion, and especially explicitly in stage of completion. The whole movement of the pranas into the center and so forth is designed to make manifest that innate, that innate mind of clear light. Yeah? And so the word mind is used but what's it referring to is nothing other than primordial consciousness, pristine awareness. And why is it called innate? I think because it's utterly transcendent. It's utterly transcendent. Um, it's beyond all conceptual elaboration. It is the ground. It is the ultimate ground. Uh, and so now we see the bandwidth of this word, sem. it's the word sem, chitta, which I've often used to refer to coarse mind, which it often is used in that way. But then, in the same terminology, the subtle mind, the, sub, the, the subtle mind is the, sub, it's the substrate consciousness, same word mind is used. And then on the deepest level, the word mind is used again, but with all, always with these qualifiers. So that's all it refers to. Um, the phrasing seems to allude to some kind of entity. Well, I think it's reading too much into the term. I mean, it, I, can, I can understand why one might read that in, but it's a mis misplaced reification of the term. Uh, fundamentally, this state of consciousness is simply inconceivable, so to try to turn it into an empty entity is to miss the point entirely. Okay? Related question, a few days ago you talked about accomplished yogis. 
abiding in the clear light of death for several days. Yes, Genlam Rinpoche is one, Racha Rinpoche, and many, many others. So there are those. And on another occasion, you refer to a highly realized yogi who, uh, who was abiding in Rikpa for long stretches of time, charging his batteries. That's a little bit of a conflation. I, I remember exactly when I used that term, charging his batteries, and I was referring to Genlam Rinpoche. Now, he was meditating towards the end of his life from five o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the morning. But what he was meditating on, that's beyond me. I don't know. Whether he was resting in Rikpa, whether he was practicing Dumo, which I knew he practiced, meditating on, on Bodhicitta or Lamrim, I don't know. So I can't say, oh, he was meditating, you know, on Rikpa. I just can't say, I don't know. He may very well have been, but I don't know. Is there some way of conveying what happens du- uh, during the merger with primordial consciousness? Um, boy, that's an easy, an easy answer. Is there some way of conveying what happens? The answer is no. <laughs> really not. Uh, there is a way of conveying how to practice so that you realize it for yourself. Uh, one can use, I mean, I can parrot, you know, like a little polywanda cracker, I can parrot the words used by those who've had such d- direct realization. Uh, and I've translated them. I think I've translated them together with other, you know, experienced translators. I don't think they're mistranslations. But words like um, vast expanse, one taste, and many other terms. Um, but whatever comes to mind when we think of vast expanse or clear light, primordial consciousness, innate mind of clear light, whatever comes to mind when we bring those words to mind is not primordial consciousness. That I think we can be sure of. Because primordial consciousness is not an object of the mind. It's beyond the very dichotomization of subject and object. So you can't say it's, a, it's, you can't say it's an absolute subject, because that would be buying into the bifurcation of subject and object. It's not an object. It's beyond all conceptual elaboration. So now I'm speaking just simply from the Dzogchen perspective. But they say it's beyond existence and non-existence, beyond coming and going, beyond birth and destruction beyond one and many. So those are four classic demarcations, pretty basic to our way of navigating our way through reality. And the teachings from Dzogchen, and they're homogenous here, there's no debate, is that for each of those, this is a singularity. That is, this does not compute. So, well, is it really one? Is it really many? Does it really exist? Does it intrinsically exist? Or do you mean it doesn't exist? It just does not compute. Don't ask the questions. If you want to know about the innate mind of clear light, Here's the practice, you'll know it for yourself. Then you'll know that it is by nature inconceivable and ineffable, but happily you will then be in a position to lead others to realize for themselves this ineffable and inconceivable ultimate ground of being. Here's a question from Ilsa. Check quickly, it's not anonymous. Can one really uh, separate our awareness and substrate, substrate consciousness as being secular from pristine awareness, as being and, and then and then pristine awareness, as being religious. It's a very interesting question, a good a good philosophical question, and it it ex, it expresses. I think there's a lot hidden behind that uh, question, and that is, as we know, Ilsa, in our modern universities, if you have a, a, a theology department, they're over there, and they do theological stuff. They don't do physics. They don't do Majamaka philosophy, they don't do quantum mechanics, they don't do neuroscience, they're doing religious stuff, theology. Then you go over to the natural sciences, and boy, they don't do philosophy, 
and they certainly don't touch religion with a 10-foot pole unless they're observing religious people, which is then cultural anthropology. That's fine, but that really is anthropology. And then we have philosophy. Well, you know the philosophers don't do religion unless they do philosophy religion, but they're doing philosophy. They're not doing science. They don't pretend to be doing science, and they're not doing... So in the modern university, these three are almost non-overlapping domains. Now, once in a while, Buddhist philosophy will be taught in a religious studies department, and, and also you'll have anthropology of religion taught in a religious studies department. That happens. But we view these disciplines as really overall non-overlapping. And that was certainly not what I meant uh, when I suggested that this realm of shamatha, the four measurables, is more in the domain of science, whereas when we go to the madhyamaka, the chittamatra, which is both theory and practice, designed to really liberate the mind of mental afflictions using the philosophy as a tool, which is not the way philosophy is used overall in the mental... In, I, I can't remember a philosopher in recent times that said, you know, practice is philosophy and the afflictions of your mind will vanish. Maybe I just haven't read enough, and that's certainly... Well, it's certainly true. Whether it's relevant here, I don't know. Um, so I was not suggesting that there were, from the Buddhist perspective, that these non-overlapping domains, but, I, and, but rather in terms of the methodologies used, could scientists make sense of what is being done in the practice of shamatha? So could psychologists make sense of what's being done as one cultivates loving-kindness, compassion, and the other immeasurables? Is this the kind of thing they would study that makes sense to them to study? Yes. It does. There's positive psychology, which is looking into virtue, into, into compassion. Uh, we had a whole team of affective psychologists and cognitive psychologists who are, who are really doing the work together with cognitive neurophysiologists in the Shamata project. So the answer is yes. This is to say, oh, yeah, cool. You know, let's see the behavioral correlates. Let's do measurements of the, of the brain states and so forth. And happily, I'm very happy to say this, in the Shamata project, and I think this is unique in my limited experience, again, I'm expressing more ignorance than knowledge, but from my limited experience, this is the only study of this, of this magnitude where the, journaling, the journals of the meditators themselves were included as data, and the type of entries I make for each of you when I meet with you once a week, um, that that was also data. That was that was, how do you say, integrated into the analysis of what went on as these meditators meditated for three months. So we had the first person very much included, taken seriously. The first person daily journals, elaborate, with, and then multiple questionnaires they had to go through, and interviews, you recall, uh, with a highly trained psychologist. The first person was taken very seriously. The second person perspective is that of the instructor. That was definitely incorporated. And then the behavioral measures from the psychologists, the interviews from the psychologists, and then the physiological measures, including saliva, blood, and EEG, uh, these were all integrated. So this was really the most multifaceted study, and all of this is good science. We did not have a philosopher among the, the Western scientists doing the study. We did not have a philosopher, and we didn't have apart from myself, among the scientific team doing the research, there was nobody doing Buddhism except for me, right? So that's what's meant by this, that this is in their, their domain. Now, when you raise the kind of questions that are raised in, in Karasa, even in the four Satipatthanas, of things like, well, the four Satipatthanas, the four applications of mindfulness, raising questions about the, the, the true sources of happiness and suffering, you can say, well, that's a bit psychological. Actually, the four Satipatthanas are really right there on the cusp, I think, between science and philosophy. By the time you go into Madhyamaka philosophy, I don't think there's so much psychology there. Some, you can, you can relate it to psychology, but it's much more in the bailiwick of philosophy. And so if I should start talking about Madhyamaka philosophy to a you know, university faculty, 
and say, who can really relate to this professionally, the hands that would go up would be the people in the philosophy department, primarily. Whereas, if I should start speaking about rikpa, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, dharmakaya, then the philosophical hands will go down, the scientists will say, does not compute, does not compute, does not, <laughs> you know. And the only hands that would go up would be people in religious studies. And they would say, oh yes, this, is, this, this reminds me of uh, Neoplatonic uh, mysticism in the Christian tradition. Oh, this reminds me of Taoism. This remind, oh, this is Satchitananda. I can relate to this. I wonder what the comparison is. And so that's all I was getting at there. But your point, as you elaborate on this, is are th from the Buddhist perspective, within the Buddhist context. So what I'm doing is taking Western categories and seeing how might they match or fit with which something in Buddhism which is completely overlapping. So your psyche, and that, so we all know what that means, of course mind, in this context, uh, the emotions, thoughts, memories, where are they coming from? They're coming from the substrate consciousness. They are expressions of the substrate consciousness. The appearance that arise to the mind are arising out of the substrate. So the psyche and the substrate, there's no way you can just separate them and say, okay, you know, off in your own corner like two boxers, you stay in your ring, you stay in your ring, then the substrate consciousness becomes inert and the psyche vanishes altogether. Right? And so a profound entanglement, a profound relationship, um, and it's not one way. I think there's a general good rule of, of natural science across the boards, and I suspect, it's, I, I suspect it's invariable, and in fact Buddhism says it is invariable. That if A influences B, A, B, just anything, two categories, A and B, if A influences B, B influences A. No exceptions. Right? Um, I, I wrote about that in my book, Contemplative Science. So if we say, well, okay, the, the, the psyche is emerging out of the substrate, the appearances to the psyche are emerging out of the substrate consciousness. The, appearance, the appearances are rising out of the substrate. That's clearly the substrate and the substrate consciousness are causally affecting, generating uh, the psyche and the appearances to the psyche. And then we say, well, is it one way or does the psyche also influence the substrate? Every thought we think, every action we engage in, every emotion we experience is, is just going right back and sowing seeds right back into the substrate. And they'll sometimes come out and, uh, how do you say, manifest, they'll germinate in dreams. So we'll have some strong emotion during the daytime, the emotion passes, the seeds are planted, lo and behold, that night, out come those seeds, you know. So, profound entanglement back and forth. But the substrate is primary and the, and the psyche is secondary. This is subtle mind, this is coarse mind. In a similar fashion, we can say the substrate consciousness in Tibetan is rikpe tsel. It is a creative expression, an effulgence of rikpa. Not in a straight causality. It's not like rikpa comes first and then the substrate comes second. It's not that, because the rikpa really is, after all, transcendent beyond conceptual elaboration. But the substrate, the substrate consciousnesses are not other than rikpa, are not other than rikpa and Dhammadhatu on the ultimate level. They're not other than. They are indivisible from. They are expressions of. So, but this there, as soon as you talk about something that is inconceivable and how it relates to something else, something else, the relationship is going to be inconceivable. And exactly how is it that Rikpa gives rise to? Well, it's a manner of speaking, because this really is inconceivable. But they are all mutually interpenetrating. That we can say. And so in terms of, and here's where I'll stop, in terms of methodology, in terms of methodology, 
the methodology of shamatha, the four measurables, really fits, it, it really makes sense in terms of psychology. You're talking about attention, executive control, terms that psychologists can really make sense of. And likewise, the four measurables. In terms of methodology for realizing shamatha and the four measurables, that's really, the methodology is right there in the, the category of natural science, psychology, mind science. In terms of the methodology of Madhyamaka philosophy, Vipassana, I would say, well, this is, on the one hand, it's highly empirical, so it's scientific, but it's also definitely philosophical. So methodologically, it's something of both. By the time you go to Buddha nature, and this is very clear, for example, in the Uttara Tantra by Maitreya, transmitted by Asanga, it's very clear there that the that which really enables, I mean, clearly they're the practices, Tekchut, Turkel, Mahamudra, and so forth, stage regeneration, stage of completion. But what is it that really opens the door to that direct realization of Rikpa? And, or Buddha nature, let's just stay with Buddha nature for the time being. And in this classic treatise, really one of the foremost treatises on Buddha nature, the Uttara Tantra, um, it's stated there that you realize Rikpa by way of faith. And that's not how you realize things in science. And that's not how you realize things in philosophy. Science is empiricism. Philosophy is using reason, clearly. This is faith. But, the, but then we ask, what do you mean by faith? Do you mean somebody, some authority said, you really do have a Buddha nature? Believe me. Take my word for it. And so because I have faith in that person, therefore now I'm going to realize my Buddha nature? That can certainly play into it, having a, you know, a very, how do you say, inspiring teacher. Certainly very helpful. But I think the word faith here is much closer to intuition. That that which brings you to it is something beyond just what appears to your physical senses or even your mental senses to the coarse mind. It's something beyond reason. You don't just get your way there by way of syllogisms or debating. It's something, it is really that Buddha nature within you being aroused and giving you the intuition that it is there to be discovered. And so that faith is coming right from your Buddha nature at like an inward striving or yearning to realize your own nature. Something like that, maybe. So is in our awareness, is, is there not a foretaste uh, of pristine awareness? The answer is yes, there is. Yes, there definitely is. Is that not, is that not why awareness is sweet? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Good. And last one that we have written, this is an anonymous one. And so, last night uh, I was practicing mindfulness of breathing and not especially well, I thought. Glad you have the commentary there. <laughs> You're really not that good. <laughs> and then, bang! A large dim blue light appeared at my nostrils where I was focusing. Later, when I was asleep but not dreaming, with the same force but incredible vividness, a brilliant diamond radiating silver, blue and pale pink light appeared at my forehead between my eyebrows. Did something open? I sure hope so. <laughs> yes, please explain. Uh, yeah, the answer is yeah, certainly, quite clearly, something opened. Um, and this is the nature of shamatha altogether when it's practiced well, even though sometimes we may not feel, feel we're practicing well. If we're engaging in the practice and following the instructions, then we may be practicing well even when there are a lot of thoughts arising or even when there's a lot of grasping. 
If there's a lot of grasping, that doesn't mean that you're not practicing well. Because imagine that that would be true. That if a lot of grasping is rising, you're just not practicing well. Well, that means you're not, you don't even start practicing well until you're at least on the fourth stage, maybe the seventh. Which means I suck, I suck, I suck. I don't suck quite as much, but I still suck. I suck, I suck, now I don't suck. Imagine getting through, st- th- through seven stages and telling yourself all the way along, I suck. <laughs> Lots of luck with that one. And so, really, I think we have to shift the, how do you say, the, the appraisal process here. And that is, if you're dealing with just generally speaking, and, and a few of you here have encountered some significant adversity while you've been here, you know, coming from outside. Um, in which case, when that, emer- uh, that adversity arises, and here I will, of course, keep utterly anonymous, it's your business, but you shared it with me privately. When that adversity arises, lo and behold, lo and behold your shamatha practice wasn't as good as it was without, w- before that adversity arose. Right? Adversity arose, it, it disturbs the mind, emotions come up, a lot of thoughts come up, and so forth and so on. But you didn't choose the adversity to arise, it just it got dumped on you, Right? But now, for a while, the quality of your practice isn't that good. It's just so much is stirred up. Shall you tell yourself now, um, I suck, I'm not practicing well, I'm really terrible at this, I'm a lousy meditator? Well, maybe you are. That's a separate question. But the fact that your practice isn't going so well, what would you expect? You know, if you're an arhat, then you would expect no matter what adversity arises, you'll be completely unperturbed, right? But this means maybe you're not an arhat yet, right? And so, how do we know whether we're practicing well? It's not how well it's going, it's how well we're practicing. We can't control how well it's going, we can control how well we're practicing. And just doing our best from moment to moment, remembering what are the instructions for mindfulness of breathing at the nostrils, for example, settling the mind. How do you know when you're doing it correctly? and then doing your best. And on occasion, because everybody pretty much has described your practice as up and down, up and down, but gradually an incline. Uh, nobody said, I'm exactly where I was four weeks ago. Nobody's come up with that. Let me know if you think that's the case. Um, but practicing well is given what's being dealt to you, whether it's prostate cancer, whether it's financial problems, whether it's personal problems, whether it's dredging up old fears that you thought you had left behind and lo and behold they have not been left behind, whatever's coming up, that's what came up. How good a practitioner are you? The skill, the sincerity, the motivation, the intelligence with which you deal with what's coming up. And if you say, all right, this is what I've been dealt with and I'll practice as well as I can, then you're an outstanding practitioner. And it doesn't feel good, it's not very satisfying at that time, but you're practicing, and this is how you get better. If one has a, a fair-weather, a fair-weather attitude towards dharma, uh, like a fair-weather sailor, and a fair-weather fair weather sailor, a person has a sailboat, is a person who only goes out into the ocean when the, when the conditions are perfect. Oh, there's just a little bit of waves, a gentle breeze, the sun is shining, time to go sailing. And then you go out and you always have a good, jolly good time. That's a fair-weather sailor. Right? When everything's just fine, okay, now let's go sailing. It's a hobby. It's a hobby. Professional sailors do not have that luxury. 
you know? They just never have that luxury. Only if it's a hurricane force, something like that. Otherwise, rough seas, whatever it is, you take what you get. And so if one has a fair-weather sailor attitude towards dharma, you'll be splashing around on the shallow end of the pool forever. That's what I would say. Your practice isn't going to go anywhere. It's a hobby. It's just a hobby. It's a hobby you, 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 you practice when you feel good. Or maybe it's a hobby that you just practice when you feel bad and you just want a band-aid. But the, the true sailor is one who is so seasoned and so committed to his craft or her craft that is there to weather any storm. And knowing sometimes pleasant, not, sometimes not so pleasant. And for the Dharma practitioner, you give up attachment to this life and you let your mind become Dharma. And if your mind is Dharma, then you just never stop practicing. And that's that. So, we have some minutes left. Any insights, questions, comments, observations? Yes, we'll start with Ricardo, and if we can have the microphone. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so, um, this morning, practicing um, awareness of awareness. Mm. If you remember, um, that's not my practice, pretty much. It's, it's really hard for me to practice yes, awareness yes, of awareness. Mm -hmm. But then I had an experience um, that... Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to detach from everything that is not awareness, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I was expanding and I'm detaching from everything else other than awareness, mm -hmm. I felt um, like the awareness would go infinite, mm -hmm. but I don't have a feeling of of size of being humongous. Yeah, good. It's just it's just infinite space. Yeah. Um, and then when I go inwards. I feel like it could go infinitely inwards. Yeah. And there is no and there is no space of it's exactly in my mind right. or above or in my heart. It's just because mm -hmm. I'm detaching from everything. And I just wanted to know if that is as if I'm getting closer. Because I've been trying <clears throat> I've been trying all this time to practice awareness yes. of awareness and yes. it's been I hard for me. So I'm see, is that how it should be? Or? You are now practicing. The answer is yes. Very good. Very good. <laughs> And also, the, the last question des deserves a little bit more of an answer. These are interesting, interesting experiences. The breakthrough, the, the blue flash of light, the multicolored light, yeah, these are breakthroughs. And what happens in any form of shamatha uh, is that as you're practicing, as you're settling, so I went off on that whole tangent where the person said, I didn't feel I was practicing very well. Um, obviously, good enough or well enough for some interesting breakthroughs to occur. As the pranas are moving about in the body, they're adjusting, they're settling, they're starting to flow where they've not flowed before, uh, it is absolutely commonplace that you'll experience very unusual somatic experiences. The most common is just a sense of flow of energy, like a buzz, like if you put your finger in a, an electric socket, socket and just feeling a buzz of energy or other wide variety of somatic experiences showing that the flow of energy is, is really starting to open up. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, another expression of this settling of the mind, which occurs concurrently with the settling of the energy, is a lot of very interesting uh, psychological experiences, including visionary experiences. And so the fact that the first one, this blue one, arose right where this person was attending uh, in the mindfulness of breathing, and the, the drama of it, that it wasn't just kind of some image that kind of drifted in and drifted out, you know, as many images just come and go in any shamatha practice. 
uh, which are merely distractions. This one came in with a, son son like with a sonic boom, like, you know, like a jet breaking the sound barrier. And so when something like that happens, or then with a variation, because it wasn't just blue, it was multicolored, but again with this really exceptional luminosity, then consider this as a good sign. It does mean that things are opening up and you might want to just, you know, just be attentive to that. Don't crave for it, don't long for it, don't hope for it, but continue the practice because it's going well. And should you have this experience repeatedly, and maybe it will start to homogenize. I can't say for sure, but maybe it will start to homogenize. Let's imagine it's the blue light and it's right there where you were attending to the tactile sensations. And then suddenly there's this discontinuity. It's not one just one more vague wandering image coming in, but boom, something is there. If that happens repeatedly, right where you're attending to, welcome to your acquired sign. And when that arises, as if you've just become lucid in a dream, a number of you have reported lucid dreams to me, and pretty much everybody who's reported it, who's freshly had a lucid dream after not having it for a long time, or maybe never having it had it, uh, almost always the experience is you become lucid, you say, wow, and then you wake up. <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> so, gosh, I wonder what would be the remedy. What do you think might be the remedy for that? Relentless resolve to relax. Yeah, chill, relax, loosen up. Ah, just one more lucid dream. Yeah, I had one 13 years ago. <laughs> just another lucid dream, you know. What can you do? Relax, sustain it. <laughs> and so likewise, in order to sustain the, your lucid dream, relax and then sustain the focus. Remain engaged with the dream and sustain your lucidity. Likewise, because it's very possible after this retreat's over that some of you may be just cruising along, not meditating very well in your own eyes, and then boom, you know, comes some very interesting image right where you're attending in mindfulness of breathing. When you see that, relax. Just be present with it. And when it fades, let it fade and come right back to the cessation. Okay? That's it. So, any other? We still have, yeah, several, min several minutes. Yes, we'll go for, for first Elizabeth and then Sanjay. Is it working? Yes. Yes, it's working. Um, this is to go back to the subject of death and dying. Dying. Of dying, yes. Dying. Been there, done dying. that. Yeah. Um, I've heard it said that death actually doesn't take place straight away when the physical death mm -hmm. takes place mm -hmm. and that it's bad to move the body of somebody oh, right, who's right. just died. Right. Now, presumably... In Tibet, they used to leave them three days, right? Uh, that's common in Tibet, yeah. Now, if you die in a hospital, you're shoveled out almost immediately. Right, so, right. can this interfere with your process of dying if your body is interfered with too soon? And yes. is there anything one can do about that? Yeah. And now it's a very practical question. Yeah, we remember from Dujom Lingba, when referring to the dying process, that when you come to the blackout phase, which is now where, from the Buddhist perspective, now you're dead, your mind is now irreversibly dissolved, that is the mind that rose independence upon the brain, 
is now dissolved into the substrate, that you may remain there for six hours, two or even three days. That's what he said. Which means that the energy, and this is just the subtle energy, let alone the very, let alone the very subtle energy, you know, we haven't even gotten to Rikpa yet, but this means at a, you know, that there's really still a connection between your consciousness, not your mind now, but, your, your, but the substrate consciousness, it's still connected to this body. And the prana related to, that are actually inextricably of the same nature as that substrate consciousness, they're still in the body. And they're right there in the heart chakra. Well, if somebody then chucks your body out and, you know, burns it or buries it or, you know, messes around with it, maybe even starts doing an autopsy, autopsy on it. Well, if you're, um, you know, if you're an ordinary being, if, you, if, if, ne if you've never meditated, well, they're just, you know, they're just cutting short your time of being dead. And then they're going to really cut short your time of clear light of death. But if you've not done any meditation, then when you're dead, you just will be unconscious. And when you enter in the clear light of death, you'll be oblivious. And so it's not that big a deal. So you missed out on two movies you wouldn't have enjoyed anyway. Right? Uh, on the other hand, if you've achieved shamatha, then there's a real chance of entering into that blackout phase consciously, remaining in it lucidly, and kind of enjoying your final shamatha session for this life. And then if somebody starts carving up your body, well, that's going to put a big dent in that practice. So not so good. Uh, even though just dwelling in shamatha, dwelling in the substrate, is not, is not radically transformative, but nevertheless, it is your final, your final practice, you know? Don't mess with me. Uh, but more importantly, if you are a more accomplished practitioner, either by way of state regeneration completion or Mahamudra Dzogchen, and you actually have gained some realization, some real experiential insight into Rikpa before you die, uh, then, Dujum Lingba said, if, you've been able to, if you can enter into that and remain for a day, you can remain in the clear light of death for one week. Uh, so, if you think there's a real possibility, judge by, judging by your past experience, that when the clear light of death arises, that you may identify with it, that you, you may be ripe enough to identify it, then it would be really very too bad. It would be really, really very unfortunate for somebody then to cart, out, cart away your body and do an autopsy or mess with it or let alone burn it. They will, they will terminate your final realization. Yeah. And then uh, put it in a, in a morgue, would that upset it? Right. I really can't say. What I can say is that I know <clears throat> for the Tibetans, uh, when, they feel there's a, when they feel there's someone who, well, just generally, it's, it's a common habit. Bear in mind, they are at 12,000 feet, yeah. many of them. 8, 10, 12, 14,000 feet, which means the smell is not going to get to them that fast if it just, just decomposes normally. So the person you know, spends an hour or two on the substrate consciousness, passes through the clear light of death, about the, uh, about the duration of drinking a cup of tea, and then just slips right on through. Well, the body will, will, will clearly show signs of decomposition pretty quickly. Any medical professional that look at bodies, decaying bodies a lot, they can tell quite quickly, I think, oh, this, this body has definitely in the, begun the process of decay. Whereas if they watch a person who's abiding in the clear light of death, that doesn't happen. And it's really weird, but it has been witnessed now by many medical doctors. So, I can't say how much damage if they just wash your body and then put it in a vault for a while. I can't say. What I do know is that in the Tibetan tradition, and it's same in, same in Mongolia, and we'd expect the same thing for Ladakh, Bhutan, and so forth, that um, 
just this is this person's fi final time and let them go through it until you know that final time is finished. So just three days, you know. If you disturb it before then, I don't know. But I know that if I had any choice about it, I'd prefer not to be disturbed. I mean, it's not costing anybody anything. It's just a habit. Just a habit. As soon as the body starts to smell bad or any medical professional sees there's no question about it, this body is in a process of decay, that means that the energy on all levels, the coarse, the subtle, and the very subtle, have completely disengaged from the body. And, and that person, that individual, is off in the bardo, bearing the memories of the past mind, and so will still think in the language that one spoke previously, and so forth, and remember one's past identity. So you're working, it's almost like fumes. You know, the engine shut down, but the fumes are still coming up. So you don't have a brain to support that, but the, the language skills, the emotions, the memories, all of those are stored in the substrate and not in the brain. Therefore, you will still feel you've got the same mind for a while until you go further, further into the bardo and then you, you, know, you start to slip into amnesia. So what can be done? Um, in some countries, it's very strict, especially if you die in a hospital, that they have their rules and regulations and unless you work out something beforehand, they will do whatever they want to do with your body uh, when they feel that you're dead. And I understand that's about seven minutes after, the, after, after brain death has, has... After there's brain death, my, I, I've asked, and what I've heard, maybe I heard wrong, but what I heard was seven minutes after brain death, and they cannot, with shocking, the shock treatment and everything else, they just can't get the heart going, they can't get anything going again. Everything is flat for seven minutes, then I think they pretty much say, okay, 12-15, uh, this, this person is, is now dead. And then that's when their rules and regulations click in. Now, if you die at home, you might have a bit more freedom. But again, I'm now dealing with legal issues, and I'm absolutely not a legal expert. So I would say this would be something to work out. You know, die in the right place. <laughs> but they don't have some law that makes them, you know, carve up your body or do weird things with it before you're really confident that you are finished with your final meditation. Go ahead. Follow up. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that raises the issue of donor, of? organ donation. Yeah, I was afraid you'd go there. I was afraid you'd go there. Um, <laughs> because offering, it's, it's, I, I understand everything. It's come up many times, and it's a very good question, and I'll respond briefly. Um, to offer one's own organs is a wonderful thing, and one's final act of generosity. It's a marvelous thing to provide other people with sight, with a liver, a heart, and so forth. It's a tremendous, wonderful offering. And so there that is. That's just, I think we all agree, that's just a wonderful thing to do. When you don't need this body anymore and you've completely finished with it, to offer somebody else your organs, wonderful thing. But it is true that that body has to be very freshly dead. You can't, there's just no way. Leave it for three days, it's useless. It's manure or it's something just to be burnt. So there we are. If you're going to insist that your body remains in state for three days, then you will not be offering anything, maybe hair, I don't know, but nothing significant, no vital organs, because they will be all beyond any kind of use. Um, and so then that's where, the, that's where the ethical judgment comes in, the evaluation. How confident are you that you think that you actually could get, make good use of the, the blackout phase, the clear light of death? If you think there is a, a real chance that maybe this could be your final meditation, and especially abiding in the clear light of death, to abide there is of, of tremendous meaning, value, benefit for yourself and therefore it's going to be a benefit to other beings, 
then, to my mind, if you have some confidence, some degree, some think, feeling, I think that's really a possibility for me, even with no guarantee, then the possibility of being able to remain there as opposed to offering organs, um, then I, all, I have to, all I have to express would be an opinion. But it, it is my opinion that I think the value there would be greater. Because we have seven billion people on the planet, most of them with really good organs, and most of them are not practicing shamatha, vipassana, or dzogchen. So a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of... And, and of course, I don't mean to confine this just to Buddhists, you know? There are other great contemplatives who also, they, they explain some very extraordinary signs when they die. And it would be very unfortunate, whether they're Christian, Taoist, Hindu, what have you. I think it would be very unfortunate. There was, what, what's a, there was one yogi died in Pasadena, and his body did not decompose for days afterwards. Days and days. And that was, uh, he started, uh, yeah, started a Hindu center, a Vedanta center in Pasadena, my, my hometown. That would have been really a shame to cut that one short. You know, that was a long time ago, like 50 years ago or something like that, 50, 60 years ago. So it's just a value call. Where is the greatest benefit? And I would not call that for anybody else. And the way I will call it for myself may very well change over time. Yeah. So that brings us to basically 6 o'clock. So let's hold the next question until tomorrow. I wish you a very good meal. And I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, I'll see you day after tomorrow. All free day of practice. No rules, no regulations. No talking, no Alan Wallace to agitate your minds. So, enjoy. See you Monday morning.